Lord Jesus, I thank you again for this morning. Thank you for this opportunity to, to speak what you've laid on my heart and to just pick up just a message you've put on my heart through Mark chapter two. And we just praise you for your greatness, um, your goodness, and your mercy and kindness in our lives. I do want to pray in the name of Jesus for uh, your filling of the spirit. I pray you'd show me how I can speak in a way that blesses you and honors you. I pray you challenge each of us, even through the ways that you challenge me, Lord. I pray you'd even challenge me through this through your word this morning, Lord Jesus. Let us all bless you and honor you and use our lives as an act of worship to you. Pray you show us everything you'd have us do that's going to let us serve you and bless you and your two in our lives. We praise you so much for this day and thank you for who you are. I give all the glory and honor and praise to who you are in advance for what's going to take place this morning, Jesus. Thank you, trust you, praise you. Invite your presence into all this and ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So as many of you know, for those of you who are regulars here at the Refuge Fellowship, <clears throat> we've been studying in Mark chapter 2. I don't remember the last time we actually taught on Mark chapter 2 was. But I have been tasked with teaching from Mark chapter 2 and finishing the chapter. So where I'm going to be at today is going to be starting Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. And so as I was studying this passage, getting ready ahead of time, I think the PowerPoint's up. It is. Yes. I kind of saw a common theme coming out of Mark chapter 2, at least the section that I'm in. The theme was, and it actually begs the question, what's the difference? What is the difference? That sounds very generic. So when I say, what's the difference? What I'm asking is, what's the difference between you and a non-believer? What's the difference between your life and that of somebody who's not following Jesus? It could even be somebody who's totally not following the Lord at all. Let's say somebody who's an outright Satanist, and they've sworn their allegiance to Satan, and yada, yada. Or somebody who thinks they're born again, thinks they're following Christ, but they're not. They're deceived. They just think, well, I've been churchy, and I've been going to youth group, and yada, yada, and I've, just, I've been brought up in the church. That's good enough, right? Somebody who's religious, I guess you could say, but they're not born again. What's the difference between your life and that person's life? So for all of you hermeneutic you know, Nazis out there, there's my intro. We're done now. Moving into scripture. I will start. I'm going to break this up into several different sections in Mark chapter 2. So I am going to go through the rest of the chapter. But to start, we're going to begin in verses 13 through 17. Mark 2, 13, I read, uh, yeah, speaking of New King James Version, that's where I read from, because it's totally spiritual, and God blessed it. There you go. Mark chapter 2, starting at verse 13, that he went out again by the sea, and all the multitudes came to him, and he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the, at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened, as he was dining in Levi's house, that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many. And he followed, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So as I'm studying this passage, just to clarify a few things. The beginning of the passage starts with Jesus talking to someone who's named Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Do we all know who he's talking about here? Matthew, is that slide up? Okay, yeah, Matthew. So for those of you who like to watch the show, The Chosen, I mean, I'm a big fan of the show. This is Matthew, played by, I can't remember the actor's name. Pev Patel, I think is his name. He's pretty cool. I'm a fan of The Chosen. So go to the next slide real quick. So just to save any confusion, we're talking about the same guy here. We have Levi, Matthew, same person. That's who Jesus is talking about. <clears throat> Kudos to Travis for bringing this meme up. So here's the thing. Um, when Jesus makes a call into somebody's life and he says, follow me, Jesus isn't just telling someone, okay, I want you to follow me. That means continue doing everything that you're doing in your life like you normally would and just physically move behind me. That's not what he means by follow. That could be part of it. When Jesus tells somebody to follow them, that Jesus is calling that person 
to completely repent from and forsake everything they were doing in their life, to turn away from absolutely everything they once were doing, change their will, change their agenda, change their mind pretty much about everything, turn away from all that, leave that behind, and embrace this new life as someone who follows Christ. So as I'm studying this passage, and as I was looking into it, you kind of have to consider what type of person Matthew was. We all know what he did as vocation, right? Tax collector, exactly. Uh, what type of life does a tax collector lead? So tax collectors, I just wanted to put a few notes up there for tax collectors. Tax collectors were somebody that intentionally sought out employment by the Roman government. And if you know anything about Hebrew history, you don't know the, it's not important to know too much about it, but Hebrews and Romans, no friends. They didn't like each other. The Romans oftentimes oppressed the Hebrews. They would put taxes on them. They would just, yeah, they were the ruling authority of the day. They did not get along. They had oppressed the Hebrews for a long time, and it was, it was not good. There was not a good relationship between them at all. So if you were a Hebrew and you decided to seek employment by the Romans, you were betraying your own people. So when Matthew decided to become a tax collector, he was intentionally seeking out employment by Rome. So he was forsaking his people and saying, you know, forget you guys. I want Rome. Why would he do that? Number two, if you're seeking to become a tax collector, it is an easy way to get rich. It's an easy way to make money. Uh, tax collectors back in the day would, it's, it's in a way a weird type of enforcement for taxes. Taxes that Rome would impose on anybody that they were over, including the Hebrews. So if a Hebrew or if there was a tax collector who was contracted to be that tax collector, they would come in and they can do that tax that Rome wanted. And they could also add on additional taxes if they wanted to. And they would just keep that extra tax that they put on there. Does that make sense? So it was definitely a quick way to get rich. And so I threw in the reference to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, which says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. I think it's safe to say that Matthew, yes, he betrayed his people. It's also safe to say that he very likely loved money. He wanted money. He wanted the comfort that money provided. So you're somebody that loves money or someone that wants to get rich quickly. Now, if any of you have worked for the government before, like I have for most of my professional life, it is a very cush job. It's a very cush position to be in, I think. Yeah. A lot of you who do work for the government know that it's very nice in many ways. You get really cool benefits. You have a mandated retirement pension. That's, you know, you're, they require you to have that, which is cool, I guess. It's very easy, guaranteed job. There's always going to be government there. It's just a thing. And so it's very easy to see comfort and employment by the government because it's a very easy thing to do. So you're intentionally seeking employment by Rome or the government, easy way to get money. And you have the comfort that's provided by all the money you're making. Plus, not only are you forsaking your people, you're befriending the enemy, you're befriending the world. So you have that comfort of, you know, being a friend of the world. You know, the friend the, the world is by your side. You're not going to be facing any persecution, really. You're not going to be facing any grief for what you believe because you're friends with the world. They like you. When the world likes you, they don't say bad things to you all the time. So these are all the things that Jesus had to call Matthew out of when he told him, Follow me. This is a lot of what Matthew had to turn behind. If you even look at the passage that I had up, I'll just reference verse 16 in that passage. When he, uh, when the scribes and Pharisees saw Jesus eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats with tax collectors and sinners? <clears throat> so even then, the Pharisees and the Hebrews of that day recognized that this was somebody that's despised. We don't like Matthew. He's a tax collector. Why is Jesus eating with these filthy, rotten people? Why would he do that? Society already recognized him as somebody to be hated and to be despised. So if, I guess if you have to give that up, that's not hard to do. Hey, I don't want to be hated and despised. Let's turn away from that. Point being, this was someone who was just hated because he would tax and oppress his own people, or he would participate with the ruling authority that would tax and oppress his own people. 
And yet still Jesus sought out that person intentionally. Jesus didn't have any hatred towards him. Jesus didn't like just write him off and forget who he was. Jesus sought out Matthew and said, this is who I want to follow me. Jesus loved him. That's what he wanted. So I threw up a little dollar sign just to say, what are some of the things that Matthew has to give up? Obviously money. And then there's a little picture of some kid hugging the world because that's what you do. You love the world. It's great. So if Matthew is having to forget all these things and forsake them, a couple of questions came up as I'm reading this passage. And I also want to pose to you. If you're going to follow Jesus, am I willing to sacrifice my comfort, my security, and worldly treasures just to follow Jesus? Am I willing to die? I even say that to myself. I also present that as a challenge to you. Number two, am I willing to give up friendship or a good reputation with the world just to follow Jesus? Am I willing to sacrifice these things, lay them aside, face the potential for persecution, face the potential for old friends and old groups defriending me, canceling me if you want to get with this day and age? Am I willing to face all these things? Am I willing to face, am I willing to sacrifice the materialism, the hedonism, if you want to call it that? Everything that this world has to offer that like this comfortable money bought me, am I willing to lay all, all that beside in order to follow Christ? That's what Matthew was calling Levi slash, or that's what Jesus was calling Matthew slash Levi to do. That's what he calls us to do. If not, it begs the same question. What's the difference? If you're not willing to forsake those things, what's the difference between you and a non-believer? Anybody else in your life? Bear with me. I get caught in mouth when I talk a lot. So if it's rude that I'm drinking water, I apologize. But I like to stay hydrated. Um, maybe something's wrong with my kidneys. I don't know. I drink a lot of water. I do know that for sure. So to finish up this passage, I'm going to highlight Mark 2.17, where it says, Jesus heard it, and he said to them, Those who have well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not call the right, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So uh, no pun intended, but Matthew, at the drop of a dime, money in reference, was willing to just forsake everything, follow Christ. And so when Matthew did that, he forsook all these things, all this, everything the world had to offer. And then Jesus was answering the Pharisees as they were making these accusations towards his followers. And it's funny how he equates sin to sickness. How many of us think sickness and like, you know, some of us have had the stomach flu recently. Some of us had the cold influenza. How many of us think that's a great thing? It's awesome. It's excellent. Hooray! Put your hand down if you just raised it. I don't know of anywhere where sickness could be considered a good thing, at least not biblically. And so if Jesus is equating sin to sickness, it's safe to say it's a bad thing. So if you're looking for a reference where Jesus is calling sin a bad thing, this is one. One of many. Trust me, sin, not a good thing. Sickness, not a good thing. Jesus' intention is to heal people. So Jesus came to say, I did not come to accuse those or condemn those who are sick. I came to heal those. People who are sick and people who are in need of a physician... More or less, he's saying they come to me. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's what Matthew did, and that's the same example we follow when we're following Christ. Are you willing to forsake everything the world has to offer in order to follow Jesus? So that was point number one. There you go. I'm following hermeneutics again. I have point three point sermon. It's great. All right, I'm going to jump into the next section. Mark chapter two, beginning at verses 18, and I'm going to go through 22. Text on my laptop is really small, but I can read it. All right. Mark chapter 2, starting at verse 18. <clears throat> the disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. 
But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old, and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts into burst the wineskins. The wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. And so, as I was studying this passage, that same common theme is popping up for me. Even with just with verse 18, the disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came to him and said, why do you disciple, Why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So automatically, those who are following Jesus, the, the religious Pharisees and everybody there is saying, hey, you guys, you're doing it wrong. Hey, hello, Jesus. Why are they do- They're not doing it right. Why are they doing this? It's interesting how when people follow Christ, even people who have been brought up in religion and in church even notice that, hey, something's different here. Why is there a difference? So as I was reading this passage, even that one verse presented a challenge to me, and I want to present it to you guys. As you follow Christ, do those in your sphere of influence, even those who attend church, do they notice a distinct difference in your life as you follow Christ? Is there a distinct difference in your life? Are you just following some sort of religious ritual? Or are you just going with the flow of everything that the church has to offer? Or is there really a difference between you, someone who is born again, someone who's committed his life, his or her life to following Jesus? Is there a difference between your life and even the most religious churchy people of the day? If you're anything like me, I grew up uh, going to youth group and attending church, but it wasn't until, I want to say April 2005, that I actually got it. I actually became born again and committed my life to Christ. My mother had a large part to play in that, by the way, just so you know. And she's sitting back there. Hi, Mom. <clears throat> So, yeah, even compared to the most religious, churchiest people of the day, does your life make a difference? Is there a difference in your life? So that's one side note I want to add and I want to challenge you with. But to jump into the rest of the passage, picking up again in verse 19, Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So, just a quick reflection on fasting. Again, as I'm looking into this passage, I just want to touch a little bit on on fasting. This isn't going to be an entire exposition on anything of that sort. But according to biblical history, when someone was fasting, fasting oftentimes came about as a result of like some desperate, like distraught call to God. You're really like mourning and you're really grieving over something or you're like really trying to petition the Lord say, I really, really need you to do this. It's this almost like despairing feeling you have. Like I cannot do anything except cry out to God. I can't, I'm not even, I don't even want to eat right now. Yes. As believers, we do have the discipline of fasting. Um, if you feel a conviction to just say, you know what, I'm just going to plan to fast a couple times a month, a couple times a week, whatever it may be, by all means do that. That's your conviction. As you read scripture, it's expected and assumed that we're going to fast and be praying. But according to Old Testament history, if you take a look at 1 Samuel, you don't, you don't have to go there if you don't want to. But if you look at 1 Samuel, when Hannah was praying for her son, that's what she did. She was very much wanting a child. So she cried, fasted, wept, mourned until she heard the Lord's favor. He answered, and then he gave her a son. Uh, another reference comes from 2 Samuel 3 when David was grieving over the loss of Abner, I think it was. The point is, when it comes to fasting, it's often it was oftentimes associated with that deep, like gut-wrenching, I cannot do anything else except lay my complete dependency upon the Lord, desperately cry out to him. And it's almost like I, the way Tad taught me to see it was like bringing up the big guns. Like this really means you're 
like you mean business. You're really showing the Lord you're serious when you want this. You're putting everything about you. You're depriving yourself of what is nourishing, what's going to give you energy, and you're putting yourself into this fasting. So when Jesus brings up this passage, he's saying, can you fast while the bridegroom is with you? Bridegroom, that's a quick message on fasting. Bridegroom, that's an analogy related to what? Wedding. Thank you. Marriage. Wedding and marriage. So how many of us in here are married? It's an obvious question, sort of. Yeah. How many of us in here are married? Great. Myself included. How many of us in here are planning to get married? Looking forward to get married someday. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They're engaged. That wants to get married. Uh, number one, is anybody in here? I even brought up a picture of a wedding couple. I have no idea who these people are, but I just typed in wedding photo and that's what came up. And this is a good example. Why are people cheering on their wedding day? Why are they so happy? Was anybody in here on your wedding day miserable and mourning and weeping and like desperately fasting on your wedding day? I know I wasn't. If you are, please talk to us. We also do marriage counseling. Um, <clears throat> was anybody in here, anybody who's engaged or planning to be married, is anyone thinking, man, I, I am so dreading that day. I don't want this day to come. I do not want to be married, but this is happening Maybe in some cultures where there's arranged marriages, that might possibly happen. But point being, marriage, weddings were supposed to be a blessed, joyful thing. They were supposed to be a very happy thing. That's what weddings is. And I guarantee you, if you do marriage God's way, if you follow the principles laid out in Scripture and function the roles God created, yes, marriage is a very blessed and fruitful thing. Many people in here have very good, blessed, fruitful marriages. I'm one of them. Praise the Lord for that. Glory be to God for that, because I don't deserve a good marriage, but God in His grace allowed me to get one. It's great. Point being, it is a very fulfilling and, yes, joy-filled thing. And so when Jesus is speaking in Mark chapter 2, let's say verse 19, Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. What Jesus is saying, obviously, when the analogy of us as the church being the bride of Christ, Jesus oftentimes using himself as the bridegroom, I guess, He's saying when you're in Jesus' presence, there's this joy that comes with it. He's not saying, I mean, he's saying you cannot fast because there's that joy that's supposed to be there when you're in the presence. Now, and if you're looking in context of history, later on when Jesus is crucified, yes, that's the time when they can mourn and so on. But when you're in the presence, weddings were not meant to be a time of despair. In fact, in Hebrew history and in some Hebrew culture, like weddings were such a crazy, like up, like up, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, uplifting thank you alex i appreciate that uplifting thing that like people will get so into them and so crazy that even like sometimes riots would break out when people were celebrating weddings and like holy cow yeah if you were done with like riots and stuff like that it's not easy it's not fun it's intense so when you're riding over a wedding and not because bridezilla was the wrong when you're riding over a wedding because like you know people are just so joy-filled and so happy that's a good thing that's the kind of thing that jesus is trying to express here at least this is what i was gathering from scripture as i was studying this passage Jesus was saying, when you're in my presence, when you're with me, there should be joy there. There should be peace. So if those who are following Jesus, again, the Pharisees are over here calling out the disciples, you guys are doing it wrong. You're not following the same religion we are. What's wrong with you guys? Jesus is challenging them by saying they cannot fast, so on and so forth. The day will fasting will come. A couple of questions that came out when I was looking into this passage. So a challenge I have for you guys as well, and a thought to consider. Do you experience joy and peace? because you're in the Lord's presence. Let me say it again. Do you experience joy and peace because you're in the Lord's presence? If not, do you have an accurate view of Jesus? Do you have an accurate view of who he is? 
when you meditate on who the Lord is, do you have that joy? Do you understand who he is? A couple of uh, passages to justify this a little more. I threw in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, which says, Come to me, me being Jesus. Come to me, all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's who our Lord is. That's who Jesus Christ is. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. Another passage to go with this is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3-4. through 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comforts. I love that word, comfort. Who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. I think I read that right. Yeah, point being, when you're in the presence of the Lord, you should be experiencing this joy. If you see him for who he truly is, he is that Father of mercies and God of all comfort. He is that one who brings joy and satisfaction and peace to your heart. If you're in the presence of Jesus and this is not happening, I have to ask the question again. What's the difference? What's the difference between your life and that of a non-believer? What's the difference between your life and someone who believes they're saved, thinks they're saved, and they're not? Do you experience that peace and that joy? Do you experience that calmness that comes? His presence is meant to bring that comfort and peace. And even in my life, I've come to find that when I'm stressed, when I'm overwhelmed by something, I'm not very, I'm not one who normally struggles with anxiety, but I, there's times when I do get anxious over things. Do I trust the Lord enough to be able to bring those anxieties and that stress to him and let him take those burdens off me and provide me with that peace? Do we in our prayer time, assuming you are praying, bring these burdens and these stressors to the Lord to let him to relieve, relieve us of that stress provide that comfort. That doesn't mean that the circumstances around you change. That just means that when you're facing these circumstances compared to somebody who's a non-believer, <clears throat> our hope and our faith in Christ is what provides that comfort, that peace, that joy, that inner satisfying peace that surpasses all understanding, according to what Paul said in Philippians. That peace that surpasses all understanding. It's a peace that's different from what the rest of the world sees. They don't get it. They don't understand that peace because it's provided supernaturally by the Lord. And so, even in times of distress, uh, you know, the rain falls on the just and on the unjust. People who are saved, people who are not saved, we're going to face the same trials and turmoils in this world. We have hope in Christ. That's our source of strength. That's our source of hope and comfort. Do you see Jesus as that person, that person who provides you with comfort, with peace, that Exodus 34, 6 God, compassionate, so to anger? Is that your view of who God is? Is that your view of who Christ is? If not, I would say, you know, we need to correct that as well. We need to have the Holy Spirit minister to your heart and help you develop a proper perception of who Jesus is to help him see who he is accurately. Because if you don't, like I said earlier, the question is, what's the difference between your life and that of a non-believers? That all makes sense? So with that, <clears throat> I will just go ahead and jump into, let me see. Let me finish off this passage. By saying, yeah, there's a brief part in Mark chapter 2, verses 21 and 22, where he says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else a new piece pulls away from the old, and the terror is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else new wine bursts into wineskins. First, the wineskins. The wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined, but the new wine must be put into old wineskins. There's a lot that could be said about these two verses. I didn't feel too compelled or led by the Lord to actually put too much attention on that. The point being here, you have the Pharisees that are calling out Jesus and his followers saying, you guys are doing it wrong. Knock it off. Shame on you. 
Jesus is saying, your old system is not working. For what I have to offer you, this new life, this new wine, that old, stale, crusty, leathery wineskin can't hold this new wine. I'm not in there. It's going to burst. Cloth is going to tear away. What I have to offer does not fit your old system anymore. It just doesn't work. Jesus is saying, commit to a life of, commit to a life of following me and pleasing me and doing what satisfies me. I will have the right kind of wineskin that can satisfy your life. I, I supply everything you need, not this old religious legalistic system. I'm not saying that the law is totally worthless. There was some good to the law. It's not what justifies us anymore. The law shows us what's wrong. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. So that means everything is there for a purpose in scripture. We are not justified by the law. We're not meant to try to seek our salvation in the law. I'll say that. Follow Christ. Live your life for him. The system that he came up with, who he is, that's what works. Not this old religious system that the Pharisees were trying to call people out on. More or less, that's what Jesus is trying to get across there. And that's kind of what I felt led. But let us share with that. So with that, I will start moving into this last passage that I was studying, which is Mark chapter 2, picking up in verse 23. And I'm going to try to get to this passage fairly quickly. Well, I guess we have plenty of time because we're also going to be doing communion after this too. Speaking of wine and such. So Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 23. Now it happened that he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath and as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisee said to him, look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? There's the Pharisee again saying, you guys are doing it wrong. Knock it off. Why are they doing this thing, Jesus? So verse 25, but he said to them, Jesus being he, he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry and he and those with him? how he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar the high priest and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests, and also gave some to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, son of man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Once again, as I'm studying this particular area of scripture, that same common theme was coming up. Now, I already mentioned it briefly here at verse 23, but... People are following Jesus. Jesus is doing his thing, leading them. They're following. They start plucking heads of grain just to eat them. And then the Pharisees are over here saying, you're not doing the religious thing that we're all brought up to do. You guys are doing it wrong. Essentially, you could say the world is accusing you. You guys are doing this wrong. What's wrong with you guys? Why are they doing this, Jesus? It's almost like every time you study passages relating to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious authorities, it's almost like the tense that they speak in was very like, rough was very aggressive like hey you guys are doing it wrong there's sometimes when they ask very clever crafty questions that were meant to be deceitful that were meant to like kind of slide around but jesus in his wisdom was able to cut past that and not work with any of the garbage they had to offer him point being they're always like upset and offended and tense whenever they're interacting with jesus does that make sense whenever jesus is doing something that grinds against the ears of the pharisees they're always like eh, this is wrong why oh my gosh and they're frustrated they're tense they're whatever you want to call the word I like to think of offended because I guess being offended is a thing nowadays. More popular so than ever. So when Jesus is doing this, <clears throat> all he's doing is leading his disciples. They're following him. And it's funny how Jesus is doing this. Everybody is seeing what the disciples are doing. Jesus is fully aware. It's not like he was ignorant that they, oh, what? They're, they're plucking. Oh my gosh. I'm so sorry, Pharisees. Shame on you guys. Put those reins down. And no way was he doing that. Jesus was aware of what they're doing. The Pharisees were aware of what they're doing, yet Jesus himself was not offended at what they were doing, but they were offended at what he was doing. 
Why is that? Why is it that they were offended? Jesus was not. His followers just thought what they were doing was okay and acceptable in the sight of the Lord. So as they're doing that, as they're just following the Lord, quick question came up. Another challenge that I want to present to you guys surfaced as a result of, yeah, me studying this passage. Does your life in obedience to Christ cause others to be offended by your actions? As you follow Christ, as you're obeying him faithfully, does your life in obedience to Christ cause others to be offended by your actions, by the way you live, by what you do? In no way am I saying you should be seeking to offend people, like your heart's intent motive. Go offend people. Yeah, I'm pro-Trump, well, shame on you, blah. I'm pro-Biden, I'm pro-whatever. Pro-left, pro-right, doesn't matter. I'm pro whatever you want to be, whatever party you want to affiliate with. Your intention here is not to seek to offend people. Jesus oftentimes examined people's hearts and motives. In this, the intent in our heart motive should not be to go to, try, to cause strife between people. In fact, it's more pleasing to the Lord to dwell in unity with our brothers. Romans teaches us that we're meant to live peaceably among all men as much as possible to you, as much as dependent on you. So your heart's goal should not be, I need to go intentionally seek out offense from other people. Your heart's goal should be to, number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Number two, love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the theme here. Love is the purpose for why we do what we do. Your heart's motives should be that. And so with that, when you're seeking to love others, if you're living a life that is faithful to Christ, he oftentimes, regularly, not just oftentimes, your life's call should be, yes, to speak the truth to people. You should do it graciously. You should do it lovingly. You should lovingly confront people. It is not loving to not confront people and to not address people with truth and to just let their, well, I mean, I could say this thing and it would really help them. But I don't want to upset their feelings. I don't want to hurt their feelings. I don't want to upset them. Now. You should be graciously speaking truth to people. And so no matter how much you try to live a peaceful life, no matter how much you try to not offend people, well, once again, I'll ask the question. If you're not living a life that offends people, what's the difference? What's the difference between your life and that of a non-believer? If your life does not cause offense to people, how are you different from the rest of the world? If you're trying to live a life that looks like a chameleon Christian, that's the way Dr. Tony Evans puts it. And I love Dr. Tony Evans. Look into him, by the way. He's great. He calls it a chameleon Christian, somebody who like looks like who say yes, they are a believer in their heart of hearts, they devoted the life of Christ, but they try to blend into whatever environment they're in. They try to look like, well, I'm going to be this person when I'm at work and make everybody at work like me. Okay, now I'm back at church. I'm going to look like this person while I'm at church. Now I'm going to look like this person while I'm at the gym. This person while I'm playing tennis. This person while I'm at the grocery store. They kind of morph and change colors wherever they go just to make themselves more palatable to the world. Is that the kind of person you are? If so, what's the difference between you, your life, and the life of Jesus? So don't get me wrong. I say these things from the pulpits. If this is a pulpit, I guess. This is something I struggle with a lot. Fear of man. Does anybody else in your struggle with fear of man? You don't have to raise your hand, but if you want to. Hey, yeah, double-handed. There you go. Fearing people. The desire to not please people is certainly a struggle I have. Oftentimes standing up for truth, oftentimes saying things lovingly, even though they may be confrontational, it's going to cause strife. It's going to cause offense. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to seek and to save that was that which was lost. We read earlier in the passage that Jesus's goal here was to call sinners to repent, not the righteous to repentance, because, I mean, obviously there is none righteous. No, not one. So when you say things that upset people that are truthful and they're deceived, when people are walking in that deception, the truth is going to just like jab them like a knife. It's going to cut to their heart. It's going to confront them. And so trying not to do that. Yeah, Marlene is doing this like, yeah, why I oughta? It's going to 
people can't handle the truth as they're under deception. They need the Holy Spirit to open their eyes. That's where our prayer ministry comes in. That's where our efforts and our intentionality in praying for people, helping them find the truth, helping them see the light. That's where that plays a huge role, allowing the Holy Spirit to remove that like veil of darkness that, that they're under, that Satan has placed them under. The point being, <clears throat> if you're someone who says, yes, I want to use my life to honor Christ. I want, I swear my allegiance to him. I've surrendered everything I have to him and I want to live a life that pleases him. You don't get to live the comfortable Christian life that is devoid of persecution. A couple of passages that you're up to justify that a little more in Matthew 5.10. Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those. I love this passage. And I love the way Dr. Tony Evans preaches it. Don't get me wrong. He's a blessed man of God. I'm not saying he's the one guy you have to listen to. I just like him. I like his teachings. I listen to his podcast, read his books. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. What he is saying about persecution, the act of persecution in itself, not necessarily a good thing, but there is blessing that comes out of persecution. You are blessed when you're persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'll share a brief story that Dr. Tony Evans mentioned once. Uh, I think it's appropriate to share it here. He was early in his days when he was trying to go to seminary and trying to work full time and so on and so forth. He was actually working for like a railroad company, loading boxes and sh uh, onto like a shipping container. It was something like that. It was an overnight shift. And so upper management wasn't really there. They weren't really paying attention to what he was doing, to what the, co the workers were doing. And so the little crew, like the night shift crew there came up with this devious plot. Say, hey, why don't we just uh, have one of us I mean, all of us are basically clocked in, but why don't we just kind of watch and have patrol while one of us goes and takes a nap for a few hours. And then when that person's done, the next person can go in and take a nap for a few hours. And then we'll all just get the money that we can. We'll just cash in and, you know, get paid to sleep, basically. Obviously, against company policy, obviously not an ethical thing to do. Tony Evans, being a firm believer, said, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to participate. All the guys tried to invite him into doing that. They, he chose not to. He said, sorry, I'm not going to do it. So they started kind of persecuting him. They're saying, oh, look at this guy, Christian boy over here. And they started making him do a lot of the extra work, making him take loads and like, I think it was extra shifts all by himself without any extra assistance from anybody else to help him. He was doing all this work by himself. He was uh, honestly, honestly, just trying to live an honest life before the Lord, trying to walk in integrity. And he was getting some persecution for it. Shortly after, I think it's a few months into his job, <clears throat> gets a call from one of the managers into his office. So he goes in, has this meeting, Talks with the manager. The manager says, okay, Tony, here's the thing. We know what the night shift crew are doing. We're aware of it. We have some uh, some of our other managers kind of working undercover, and we've been watching them. We see the timesheets. We know that they're stealing from us, basically. But we know that you're not doing it. How would you like to take a position of uh, leadership and management in this company because of that? We're going to be firing all those guys. What would you like to do? How would you like a promotion? He's like, oh, cool. Sure, I'll take it. I mean, eventually he got out of the job, went into full-time ministry. But point being, he was willing to take a stand for Christ. He, his conviction was to stay honest, work hard in his job, not sleep while he's on the job. He received some flack for it, but he also received a blessing because of it. Does that make sense? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'm not saying that good promotions and more money is necessarily the kingdom of heaven. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the father of lights, from James. The more we serve the Lord, the more we are faithful to him. He honors that. Even if we don't see the blessing or some good fruit that comes as a result of that, you know, if you look at our brothers and sisters overseas in the Middle East who are being beheaded and tortured, they're giving their lives out of faithfulness and obedience to Christ. I mean, their end goal is they get to be face-to-face -face with Jesus. How many of us know that the end goal of your life as a believer should be, I want to be face-to-face -face with Jesus Christ. That's what I want. I want to just be with him. I want to be in his presence. I want to honor him. I want to live a life where 
I reach the end of the race and have him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's what I want. So our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted, yes, they get that, but their testimony lives on, advances the kingdom, helps people see more of who the Lord is and the love he has to offer and so on and so forth. The point being, blessed are those who are persecuted. You should be seeing persecution. You should be seeing blessing come from that persecution. It's just a regular call for every believer in your life. If you're not seeing that, goes back to the previous question. What's the difference between your life and that of a non-believer? One more passage I want to share with you. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. There it is again. Will suffer persecution. <clears throat> if you desire to live an authentic life for Christ, you're going to have to share the truth of who Jesus is and truth of his word and love, and you will suffer persecution. It doesn't matter how nicely and how lovingly you say it, you're going to face persecution at some point. People are going to dislike you. People are going to hate you. People are going to want you to be dead because all you did was stay faithful to Christ. And so going back to our passage, I think that's this is my last slide, but I do want to share a little more about the passage I'm sharing. Jesus himself called himself Lord of the Sabbath. The Pharisees are over here thinking that what they're doing is effective. And hey, we're supposed to be following this religious thing. We're, we're doing all these things right. Why You guys are doing it wrong. But Jesus is the one that's saying, no, these guys are... They're doing the right thing. They're following me. They're honoring what I want. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath here. Finishing off in Mark chapter 2, verse 27 and 28, Jesus said, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not a man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. A little bit of a summary to what Jesus was saying here. <clears throat> he brought up that reference. I think it's from 1 Samuel chapter 21, where David is you know, trying to get into the showbread and so on and so forth. What Jesus is trying to emphasize here that taking care of people and ministering to and nourishing the needs of people is far more important than following your religious ritual, following your legalistic, whatever it was. The system you have is not working. Ministering to the needs of people. It's funny how the world, the religious systems that are set up, the structures that are available, they think they're doing it right. They just, they're fully convinced that we got this. We know what we're doing. This is right. Even though if you look at the fruits of what they do, everything falls apart. The world ends up dying. It's just crazy. They're so convinced by deception because that's what Satan does. He deceives us. They're so convinced what they're doing is right and it's good and it's fruitful. Jesus came to say, no, 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 no. That's not what's going on here. What I call you to do, those who are following Christ, actually nourishes the needs of people, actually takes care of people. So I don't have any slides about this, but part of what your walk with Christ should look like is you legitimately, legitimately and authentically tend to and minister to the needs of people. As you are following the Lord, people find that nourishment. Maybe it's physically. Maybe, maybe you feel led to help out with the homeless in the community. Maybe you feel led to minister to those who are just needy and who are considered the least of these, as Scripture calls us to. The way you do it as you follow Scripture and as you follow Christ effectively ministers to those people and effectively meets their needs. It could be physically. It could be spiritually. How many of us in this room have ever struggled with lies that you believed about yourself and had to be set free with them? You don't have to raise your hands if you don't want to, but I appreciate the fact that everybody's volunteering their you know, testimonies. Really good. Honestly, when people raise their hands like that and people share, it does, say, uh, it does speak to the testimony of what the Lord has done in our lives and it speaks to the credibility he has because that's who he is. <clears throat> the point being, when you're following Christ and you're following the, the structure that he put in place, this new wine that he's offering... People's needs are legitimately met, not just like, you know, politically met. And when I say politically, it makes it look like something good is happening, but really people's lives are falling apart. 
that's what the world functions in there. That's who they are. That's what they think is going. They think that they're being effective. They think that they're working. I mean, I see Becca shaking her head because she works for, with the foster care system. If anybody who's dealt with the foster care system, you know it is a messed up system. They mean well and they want to do well. It is not working. Sad truth is it's just not. We need a new structure in place. We need Jesus is what we need. We need the Lord to return to save us from this fallen and broken world. That's what we need. The world thinks what they're doing is right. On an equal plane, the Pharisees over here, they think, you guys aren't following our religious rules. You're doing it wrong. And they're getting frustrated and they're grinding their gears. And oh my God, getting so frustrated with Christ when ultimately Jesus is the one that's actually effectively ministering to people. He's the one that's, if you study the life of Jesus, really actually feeding the homeless, really actually ministering to those in need, healing the sick. Um, I mentioned lies that we believed. He's the one that's letting people find truth and being set free from the deception and the lies and the bondage that Satan has put around us in our lives. He's actually effectively setting people free from that. The world has a system in place that makes you think you are and deceives you into thinking you are. And that's, it's not really working. That's how Satan works. He deceives us, makes us think that what he's doing, what the world is doing is effective when it's not. Maybe you, as I'm talking about this, maybe you can see why there'd be a frustration there. Somebody who's deceived, somebody who's convinced and believes that this is the way you need to do things. This system, this law, this like code of rules, this thing is how it gets done. This is how this is where the work is at. Jesus is simply saying, follow me. That's why in Mark chapter 2, verses 27, 28, he says, well, verse 28 specifically, therefore the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus himself is saying, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. It's funny how, I mean, that Greek word for Lord there is kurios. Everybody, if you guys have been studying Greek and if you're following Joe's Greek Club, we already say know what Lord is and what Kurios is. He's saying Lord. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's in charge of the Sabbath. He's not saying that the system of rules are what you have to follow. He's saying, follow me. Do what I want. I'm in charge of the system. I can get things done. That's more or less what Jesus is saying. So at the end of the day, the question still stands for you. And it's something I asked for you guys this prayer for in my life. What's the difference? What's the difference between your life and that of a non-believer? <clears throat> What's the difference between your life and anybody who's been attending church for 20, 30, 40 years, who thinks they're born again, who thinks they're honoring Christ. I mean, it's it's crazy how the world thinks that what they're doing honors God. They think that what they're doing is making God happy. What the world fails to see and what the Pharisees fail to see, that everything they're doing is not pleasing to Christ. What they're doing does not honor Christ. What the Pharisees, what the religious authorities, and sometimes even today in our day and age, with our church and with the way the church is structured in America and in many parts of the world, they think what they're doing is pleasing to God. They think the system they have in place is great and God is happy with this. It fails to actually authentically honor the Lord. Does that make sense? Yeah, they think that what they're doing is great and pleasing in God's sight when honestly their hearts are far from them. They're completely devoid of what Christ has asked them to do with their life. So I ask for prayers in that because I know it's something I struggle with. It, I think we all share that same struggle in the sense of uh, what's the difference between our life and that of a non-believer. What's the difference between our life and those who are thinking and received into thinking they're born again, but they're not born again? What's the difference? Am I making a difference in my life? Is there a difference in my life? Do I have that peace, that joy, that inner fulfillment, satisfaction? If I were to die today, I'm completely satisfied knowing I will be with Christ. Everything in my heart's fulfilled. I don't need to chase a career. I don't need to chase a marriage. I mean, I've got that. All that's great. But if I had to sacrifice all of that in order to honor the Lord Jesus, I would, because he is worth it. He is worthy. He and he alone will always be there. He's promised he'll never leave us or forsake us. No matter what the world does to you, no matter what the world strips away, no matter what you don't have or do have, 
Christ will always be there for us. He will be the one that will provide that comfort, peace, that fulfillment that your soul longs for. You can spend your entire life chasing after the world, attending church, following all the religious, ritualistic, legalistic, whatever-istic services you want to, and thinking that's going to fulfill you. In the end, if you are devoid of Christ, that will not bring you what your heart thinks it is. It will not bring you what you think it will. That's how Satan operates. He deceives us. He lies to us. He tells us, yes, this thing will be pleasing to you. This thing is good, and you'll find fulfillment in it. The reality is it doesn't. It won't fulfill you. Devote your life to following Christ. Join your brothers and sisters in prayer, bearing one another's burdens, so that we can really live those that, that authentic life that really honors God, that, really, that authentic life that pleases Christ, that makes him happy, actually ministers to the needs of those who are around us, actually takes care of people in need, ministers to their needs. And then as we're doing that, we find that there's freedom in Christ. We find that we are unafraid of persecution. Maybe we are afraid, but he, find, he provides us with that persecution, or he provides us with that comfort, that relief in the midst of stress, in the midst of turmoil. Uh, he provides us with everything we need. For those who think that chasing after materialism, chasing after money, chasing after wealth, chasing after that career, for those of you who think that that's going to satisfy you, just give it up. It's not. You'll be chasing a, a black hole, essentially. You'll be trying to fill this empty void in your heart that's not going to give you what you're looking for. Give it all up for Christ. He's the only one that can satisfy your heart and your soul. He calls you to live a life that looks different from that of the world. Amen? Amen. So that is all I got. I think it's an appropriate time for us to transition. Thank you, Lord. Praise the Lord for that. Praise God for that. It comes from his word. He's the one that said it, not me. I'm a microphone. We'll say that. Um... Yeah, great time to transition to communion. Let's say a brief word of prayer, and then we'll just start kind of moving in that direction. So, Lord, we thank you so much for this day. I thank you for the fact that your word is challenging. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. Your word is what challenges us because it's, it's who you are, Lord. You are the one that speaks to us. You're the one that guides us directly. You're the one that shows us what does a good, authentic, pleasing life before God look like. Thank you for the fact that you love us. Thank you for the fact that even when we fail, even the times that I failed, when I should have stood up and said something that was true and loving, I didn't. In the times that I should have forsaken something sinful or worldly, I didn't. I thank you for the fact that you were gracious and you were loving. <clears throat> you were always wanting for us to come into your presence. So I praise you and worship you for being the God of all, uh, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. I do want to pray today, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to examine our hearts as we enter into communion. Show us how we can bless you and please you with our lives. Show us how we can come before you with a fresh slate, with clean hands and a pure heart. How we can use our lives to honor you and to bless you, Lord. I pray as we enter into communion, Lord Jesus, you would just once again highlight those things that we need to bring before you, that we need to confess to your brother or sister, whatever it may be, Lord. Let us just really come before you right now with clean hands and a pure heart and renew our commitment to you by saying, you are Lord Jesus. I swear to follow you. I'm going to follow after you and not what the world has to say. So I thank you for this day. I pray, Holy Spirit, for your guidance and conviction in our hearts. Pray you show us how to use this time to draw near to you. Uh, we thank you and praise you and worship you in advance for the good you're going to do in our lives. And we ask your blessings over today. Praise all in Jesus' name. Amen.